Welcome to Open Out, a podcast series on the nitty-gritty of creating and participating in intercultural communities. Here we explore practical ways we can intentionally open ourselves and our faith communities to those who not only look and sound different, but also may think and act in ways we do not expect. My name is Bill Miller, and this project grew out of research funded by the United Church Foundation and my own experience as pastor of what emerged as one of the most culturally diverse churches in Canada. The podcasts are organized into little mini-series, moving from curious to considering and then on to committed. That's where we are now. This is episode six in our committed series, the second of two episodes on deshuttering worship. This episode, which is a bit more technical than most, focuses on how we can create intentionally open worship, worship that bridges cultures, worship that is inherently intercultural. This is called Ubuntu, Ubunye, and Amandla. Wherever the impulse began, your community is now drawn to intentionally opening itself to others, including opening your worship experiences. Last week, with Dan Kodka, one of our frequent mentors here at Open Out, we took a deep dive into the minds and hearts of collectivists. If you haven't listened to it yet, you might want to switch and give that a quick listen. It'll give you a bit more context and background. Today, we are looking at designing, experiencing, and leading intercultural worship. The logistics of actually doing it. Having done it for many years, I thought this would be easy. But no. Partly this is because mostly I went by intuition. That, of course, led to a few spectacular crashes, and more commonly to boring thuds. I never minded the failures, though. We learn from each one. Saying, just go with your gut, might be helpful to those who already trust their guts, not so much to others. And to be frank, some of our guts are, well, more trustworthy than other guts. What we call gut is a complex set of neurons, learnings accrued through our lifetime, but an area that our prefrontal cortex doesn't have immediate access to. Remember that prefrontal cortex is the small, slow part of our brain that does what we think of as thinking. In my life, I'd been fortunate to experience a prolonged sojourn in cross-cultural ministry. And my own experience, my own pain, and the gradual growth of understanding shaped that instinct and so gave me stuff that I could instinctively rely on when that thinking part of me didn't know what to do. Then how do you bridge the gap between individualists and collectivists in worship? How can we create worship that works for the North American-born and also for Indigenous and newcomers? It can happen. One Sunday morning at Knox, that intercultural church where I worked for 14 years, we were blessed to be joined by members of what was then called Kiwait and Presbytery. They were representing indigenous churches throughout Manitoba and Northwest Ontario, a mix, I think, of Cree, Ojibwee, and Ojibwe. They'd been meeting at Knox that weekend. Jordan Cantwell, moderator of the United Church at that time, had been attending the meetings as well, so she was in worship. It was a grand celebration, a mixture of folk who had been there for millennia and those who had arrived so recently. Many of those who had recently arrived were indigenous as well, just not North American indigenous. They, too, were mostly collectivists. In the last episode, I mentioned healing prayers where people could come forward for blessing, laying on of hands, and anointing with oil. It had become like a third sacrament for us, and so we had one that week. 
Danvers stood with a, an elder from Kuwaitin on one side, and, and over on the other side, and another elder stood with a faf, a woman from Sudan. When I do these healing prayers, they're quick. I say something like, receive the anointing of Christ for the healing of your body, for the wholeness of your spirit, and for the renewal of your mind. Quick, tidy in the way that so many of us individualists like. But there wasn't an individualist to be found among the group offering prayers that morning. Each person came forward, talked for a little while with the two who were offering prayers, and then finally they would pray together and there would be anointing and laying on the hands of people. It's over 100 people, maybe 200. It took forever. And the healing prayers were already toward the end of the service. We'd been there for almost an hour at that point. I kept looking over anxiously toward Jordan, now, now moderator, and I knew had a busy schedule. Another hour passed, and they were still praying. I looked again at Jordan. She was beaming. I tried to beam back, but it's hard when you're squirming. Time doesn't work quite the same way in all cultures, but grace does. Kindness, too. And whether we hide our vulnerabilities under a pile of ancient words in a heavily liturgical pattern, or they are rawly exposed in an open time of praying together, God seems to be able to find us. It might have been different impulses that led you to this place. Maybe the realization that if Canada's growth over the last few decades and into the foreseeable future is dependent on its openness to welcome immigrants, and most of them coming from non-Western nations, perhaps any hope for the church to survive will depend on the church's openness and its willingness to welcome immigrants. Or the impulse might have been coming from changes in your neighborhood. Or it could have been a response to the recent demonstrations and the visible evidence of racism throughout much of the world. Or maybe it was one of those mission impulses that just seemed to show up. Those persistent, inexplicable things that seem to come from God's own heart or perhaps from God's quirky sense of humor. In order to figure out how to do worship that bridges and engages diverse cultures, it might be helpful first to figure out what worship is. And that's a bit tricky. Let's start with the basics. Whatever else it is, it's a collective action meaning it's done by a group and it involves some kind of activities. But what activities? Well, just for fun, I made a list of activities that come to mind as being part of worship services in different cultures. Get ready. It's a bit long. Praying in lots of different ways. Silent, shouted, chanted, in other tongues, memorized, led, responsive, simultaneous, in long written liturgies and exuberant extemporaneous prayers. Crawling on your hands and knees and shouting your prayers as you go forward. Music's often central. Singing, both communal and performed. Instrumental, just listening to music. Movement is a part of many worship services. Dancing, formal or free form, sometimes with flags or those streamer thingies. Ring shouts, marching, shaking, running. Yep, running. Sitting and standing. Of course, when you sit and when you stand varies between churches. I remember once attending a Ukrainian Catholic charismatic mass. The priest said in a booming voice, let us all sit down to sing Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Kneeling, prostrating yourself. Drumming, so much drumming in so many different forms. Jambe, model, anything percussive. Tambourines. Ululating, amening, hallelujahing, cheering, applause. 
rituals like the sacraments, baptism, adults or infants or anything in between, communion, agape meals, healing, anointing, laying on of hands, sweet grass and sage, tobacco, sacred fire, lighting candles, swishing incense, prayer shawls, passing rocks, washing feet, exorcisms, commissioning, ordaining, burying, marrying. Of course, the many ways for passing the peace, hugging, kissing, shaking hands, fist bumping, gestures, bowing, reading scripture, poems, spoken word, teaching, preaching, testimony, personal sharing, conversation, creative arts, visual media. What brings all of this together? What's the link? I contacted some really smart people that I know, wise leaders in the church, and asked them how they define worship. Then I collected these, and I ended up with, well, a jumbled mess, really. Out of that jumble, this is what I came up with. It's not meant to be definitive. It's just what I'll be using for these podcasts. Worship is a set of collective actions by a community of people involving our whole selves in which we intentionally strengthen our relationship with one another, God, and our world. Where spiritual practice is something we can do on our own, for this podcast series at least, Worship will always be an action of the collective, something that involves a whole group, fundamentally communal, and it involves the whole of ourselves. Worship happens when spirit and the body meets together to give praise to God. Is worship an experience of the head? Is worship an experience of the heart? Is worship someplace both head and heart need to be engaged? I'm both somebody who thinks with my head, somebody who feels. And how does the worship experience acknowledge the fullness of what it means to be human? Joy, pain, suffering, laughter. How are those components played in? Worship needs to engage the the totality of who I am. That last voice was Michael Blair. Michael works for the General Counsel Office, and he has traveled as much as anyone I know, participating in worship all over the world. Recently, I had a telephone conversation with him about some of his experiences of meaningful worship in different cultural contexts, intercultural contexts. It doesn't happen by chance. It happened because some thought has gone into it, some fundamental recognition of the diversity. So you don't deny the diversity, you recognize diversity. And then you become intentional about how to to honor that diversity in this space. And then you do it in multiple ways. So word, music, drama, art, silence. And we are where we are. It's where we're heading that really matters. It's the direction that we're moving in. Let me suggest a bit of a continuum for culturally conscious worship. One end might be monocultural worship, worship that reflects and embodies one culture. That might be kind of like church as many of us have known it. Appended worship. This is like monocultural worship with little post-it notes, yellow stickies added. We add in a few little cultural elements here or there on an occasional basis, perhaps Christmas, Easter maybe having a small African group do some music. Beautiful. But it doesn't require the main group, the community, to change. The other culture clearly has a visitor status. 
Next might be modified or adapted worship. Here the main community has started to make some concessions. It might be that the community has started changing the words used during the sharing of the peace from peace be with you to Jai Mashi, the traditional Nepali Christian greeting. It involves some change, but basically the other cultural group still has visitor status. Next, along the continuum, might be blended worship. Here, worship may still have the structure, the, the underlying pattern of the dominant culture's tradition. In the United Church, it might be something like we have the sermon in the center, confession at the beginning, community prayers at the end. But the content is changed to incorporate the other cultural group or groups. There might be significant levels of translation. There might be singing in other languages and so on. And the minority culture group or groups have become actively involved in planning and leading worship. It's blended. And then intentionally open worship. You could say this is the level of intercultural worship, if you like. I played with other terms like mutual worship or meso worship, or meso means in between. It is the worship pattern of an intercultural community that has matured together, built significant respect for one another, a deep understanding and trust for each other. Love, really. And so in this pattern, it no longer looks like either the worship of the original host culture nor of any of the newcomer groups. It's, it mixes, it blends, it creates something new, dynamic and ever-changing as the community itself changes with new cultural groups as they start participating. Michael to describe one or two of his experiences of intercultural worship or worship in another culture that really stuck with him. My most recent experience was being at the, the general conference of the Methodist Church Ghana. You have 200 plus voice choir, organ, and a 50-piece brass ensemble. The music is just phenomenal. And I, I love organ music and whether it's uh, they sing in English or they sing in Akan or, or Cree, for me, you feel like you're in heaven. There's a taste of heaven. And then there are moments in the service where the organ and the brass gets put aside and it's the djembe mm-hmm. and local instrument and people dance and they celebrate and there's this joy uh, that they experience and so it's just this kind of flow ebb and flow between what i would consider very much part of the uh, the colonial expression mm-hmm. organ and choirs and and brass instruments and this local instrumentation of djembe and drums and that's that's the authenticity for for the folks who are gathering it's interesting for me that Michael chose to speak about Africa. Interesting that for so many of us, Africa has such a strong draw. Africa has its own cultural variety, of course, from the highly dense urban metropolis of Lagos to the, to the nomadic clans of the Khoisan. One of the features throughout most of Africa is post-colonialism. The mix of traditional culture, colonial history and oppression, and the emergence of new forms of indigenous cultures. 
Well, this is true throughout much of the continent. It has a particularly strong and clear articulation in South Africa, due probably to the impact of apartheid and the clear struggle to overthrow that oppressive system. Canada, like a number of other nations, is in transition. It is not what it was, nor is it yet what it will be. It was a largely white nation, but due to immigration, what was once called visible minority is, in a number of cities, already the majority. And it will be the majority if trends continue in the whole nation sometime in the near future. In an earlier episode, we talked about liminality. Now, now that word comes from the Latin for doorway. Is the doorway an inside space or an outside space? It's, of course, both, neither. It's in between. In South Africa, the townships in particular are liminal spaces, in between places, inhabited by people coming from the rural areas en route to the city. They no longer belong to the past, but they've not yet arrived in their future. They are in between, as are we. And the churches in the townships are in between places. So it might be interesting for us to see how they describe their experience of intercultural worship. Johann Silliers, a South African seminary prophet, he writes about this. He sees the townships as vitally important centers for this kind of in-between worship because they are ambiguous spaces, spaces of possibility, not policy, constantly in flux. He identifies three key elements in in in-between worship. Ubunye, meaning we are one. This is worship that is what academics call incarnational, meaning in the body. It is experience-based. It engages the senses of touching, seeing, tasting, smelling, as well as hearing. And to these he adds kinetic, movement, dance. Worship that involves the whole of the body, not just the brain. The second element he identifies as Ubuntu, which means something like, I am because you are. I exist because you exist. This is worship that is relational, affiliative, engaging. People in community engaging with one another. Relationships are central. If you heard last week's episode, you'll immediately see the parallel with Westerhaus' first two levels of faith development, experience-based faith and affiliative faith. Silliers includes a third element, amanna, meaning energy or life force. It means the divine force that animates life, but it's not quite the same necessarily as God per se. Maybe it's closer to like the force in Star Wars or prana or chi. It's spiritual power and it is transformative, transformational. It links directly to social change. As we move toward creating worship that is not limited to one cultural group, keeping these three things in mind can be helpful. Again, music, poetry, dance, drama, um, just a whole variety of styles that in in some ways not only responds to kind of the cultural thing, but also learning styles as well. Difference, of course, isn't limited to cultural difference. Brain differences are a part of every culture. For example, I have ADHD. Staying still in church for me was nearly impossible. My leg or my foot would start shaking. It annoyed the people near me royally. I I can still hear their tisks. Some kind of body engagement, some kind of movement would have helped my brain 
and therefore it would have helped my soul engage as well. The spaces that I've experienced where the worship has been fairly profound is spaces where people who have organized it understood that there was a difference in approach, different in kind of language, different in terms of style, that the planning took all of that into consideration. There was a bit of uh, something for everybody, (laughs) in a way, you know, so in terms of who prays, how one prays, uh, a mixture of kind of extemporaneous prayers, along with kind of written form prayers, movement, there was drama, varied ways of shaping the experience. The liturgy is printed in multiple languages, mm-hmm. and folks are either invited to use the language of their heart or to experiment. So somebody may, may read in English and the response is in French, or the response is in German, or would be invited to sing a song in Spanish. You know, it's, it's a space where everybody taste a little bit of their own and everybody is discomforted in a way but but everybody's invited to try something new i think that when we're in comfortable space when we're always in comfortable space i think there's a challenge for us actually experiencing the divine Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the divine becomes domesticated whereas when we're in spaces where we have to be intentional and be open uh, we're open to learning and experience spirit in new ways Michael talking about discomfort is very interesting. We found that being intentional about discomfort was really important. As we started singing songs in other languages, we would occasionally, or perhaps more often than that, encounter grumbling. People didn't really like singing in a language they didn't know. They felt uncomfortable. Then one Sunday, I just happened to say, well, of course you feel uncomfortable. That's exactly what you're supposed to feel. That's what everybody here learning English feels every day. Are you then willing to feel uncomfortable for three minutes during the service as a small act of solidarity with those who feel it all the rest of the time? Or do you simply want them to feel uncomfortable all the time and you never feel that way? As soon as people knew they were supposed to feel uncomfortable, they were totally fine with it. Oh, that's what I'm supposed to feel? Okay, that's cool. I didn't realize. Worship, Michael reminds us, is not supposed to make us feel comfortable. Rather, worship is the interplay between intentional discomfort and occasional comfort. I wish I could say that discomfort is temporary. But in my experience, the deeper we grew in understanding one another and respecting each other's ways, the more we kept finding new ways to feel, well, at least slightly ill at ease. It was, I believe, Kathy Black who first coined the phrase culturally conscious worship. I like it because it creates a sense of spectrum or continuum. She also does a nice wee bit on how to know you're making progress in opening up. So here's a bit of her list mixed with my own. Some people in church are complaining the worship service is now too long. During passing the peace now, the aisles fill up as people start greeting, well... 
everyone it seems, rather than just those who are near them. And the worship leader has a hard time getting people back to their seats. Some people have started arriving 20 to 30 minutes after the worship service begins. And others of the members grumble a bit. They think this is disrespectful. People feel comfortable offering prayers in their own language. Others pray in English, but with an accent strong enough that some people in the congregation don't understand. They're not necessarily happy about that. Community sharing of cares and concerns seems to go on for a very long time. Then again, whose cultural assumptions are deciding that this is a long time? People want to have church. At times, many of us have thought of as personal family time, like Christmas morning or New Year's Eve. Nobody seems to know when to clap. Some clap on the two and the four, others on the one and the three, others on the beat each time, and some, like me, just randomly. We also need to ensure opportunities for comfort and familiarity. For many newcomer groups, this can be a separate worship service in their own language. For Canadian-born, it can also be worship with a particular focus, a, a particular liturgy, perhaps, or teze worship, or silent vigil, or something else. Everyone's context is different. Yours is different than mine. I'm going to offer some practical suggestions that grew out of my experience and, and research. They might fit your context, but not all of them. Some won't. We've already talked a bit about normalizing discomfort. Celebrate it. Being uncomfortable is not that bad. Explain everything. For example, if you're learning a Yoruba or Tagalog song and you happen to have somebody who is Yoruba or a Filipino member, make the link. And practice the words. Explain the beat. Good explanations can help the back areas of our brain relax so the frontal cortex can participate more in worship. Focus on intentionally reducing anxiety in the community. Worship is a state of mind as well as an activity. If your brain is anxious, you're not going to be able to enter that state of mind. Beware of the cuteness factor. This was a constant challenge for us. For example, on those special days that the young Nepali women or girls would do a traditional dance in their saris with their hips swinging, it was always beautiful. That's okay, but it also needs to be worship. And that's where explanation, a little bit of teaching can come in. It can help our brains process what they are seeing so that it isn't simply lovely. It can be meaningful. Have conversations with those who are newcomers or indigenous, those who are somehow different. And in the conversation, spend more of your time listening deeply and relatively little of your time offering your own opinion. Frame your questions more as story than as inquiry, per se. Invite them to share, for example, on how they worship back home and what they experience during the drumming or the dancing. Rather than going directly to your question, come alongside, chat, listen. Next, practice intentional flexibility. Try stuff. Don't, for example, assume you know what rhythms congregations can learn. A choir leader once told me that congregations can't sing cross rhythms. I gently suggested it wasn't a problem for congregations. Even seniors likely can understand a bossa nova. It was more of a challenge perhaps for choirs, those who have classical training. 
and have somebody out in the congregation leading the singing, teaching it. Just try. See what works. See what doesn't. See what opens the heart of your community. Neuroplasticity is a term that academics use for how the brain reorganizes itself by forming new neural pathways. It tends to decline with age. Oh, I can feel that neural reluctance growing. It's good to be kind to our brains. We discovered that learning a new song in a different language could be a bit overwhelming, especially if the song had less familiar rhythms or syncopation or some unexpected tonal qualities. Catching the beat, the melody, the tone, singing words in a language we didn't know, well, the brain can just give up. Working with Bruce Harding, one of the truly remarkable global church musicians in Canada, we started translating traditional songs from Nepali, Tagalog, or Yoruba, whatever, into English. And then we would teach the song to the whole congregation in English so people could focus on the new tune, not the new language. It worked wonderfully, and it seemed to create a middle space, an in-between. Finally, believe in your vision. Trust the amanla, the, the energy. Trust the one to whom we all belong, the one who is beyond all language and culture. You're going to need that because church folk, surprisingly perhaps, can be pretty good at complaining. Resistance, however, is simply a healthy initial reaction to the introduction of any kind of change. We're hardwired to resist it. Bring your best adult self forward. In the end, all of this is not about the survival of the church, or at least not only about that. It's also about justice. The streets of cities throughout the USA, throughout Canada, throughout the world are filled with folk who are saying they are tired of the struggle against exclusion, the struggle to stand in the place that they need to stand, to be fully equal members of the community. This is what intercultural church is all about opening the doors that God never intended to be closed. You can link to all of our episodes on our website, openout.ca. There's also a Facebook page where we can connect. I am grateful to the United Church Foundation for their research grant and to the United Church's publishing house and intercultural ministries for their support. Theme music is by Bruce Harding. Terry McLeod has been my broadcasting mentor. I'm also deeply grateful to Michael Blair, not only for the interview and clips that we used today, but for his consistent support to Knox's ministry and, and for the many, many occasions in which he has been a source of wisdom and encouragement to me personally. Next week will be the last in our committed series. We'll be looking at the power of invitation, looking at what we're going to do when we start reopening our churches, our faith communities. The Open Out podcast will take a bit of a break for the summer. Then sometime in mid-August, we'll begin podcasting again with a series called Commencing. Until next week then, Jai Mashi, Shalom, Salam, Aman. Oh, 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 oh,